The synthetic opioid fentanyl has played a major role in the rising number of drug overdose deaths in the United States, and many people who die from a fentanyl overdose appear to have been unaware that they were using the drug, which is often mixed with heroin or other street drugs and has been found in counterfeit prescription opioid medications as well. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Richard Frank, a professor of health economics in the Department of Healthcare Policy at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Frank has co-authored a perspective article about the public health threat posed by the low price and widespread availability of fentanyl. Dr. Frank, in your article, you say that the number of reported deaths involving fentanyl more than doubled between 2012 and 2014. Why has fentanyl become such a public health threat in these recent years? The fundamental reasons we don't fully understand, but we understand some of the forces that are contributing to it. One is that we have started to pay much greater attention to the use and availability of prescription opioids, and therefore we have been starting to deliver abuse deterrent formulations of some drugs like OxyContin. We have engaged in a great deal of new training and new surveillance of physician prescribing patterns. We've been educating the public on it. So What you see is an ebbing of the prescribing of opioids in recent years, while at the same time you're seeing a rise in the use of heroin, which then translates a little bit, as you mentioned, into the use of fentanyl because it is very attractive economically for drug dealers to use fentanyl along with heroin. Right. In fact, you say in your article that illicit fentanyl is available at a fraction of the cost of heroin, so drug dealers have a real incentive to mix the two. How can drug users discover whether there's fentanyl in what they're using? That is a fundamental policy challenge here. And so I think the tools we have available to do that involve using the information that we get from DEA street buys and testing of those drugs, greater surveillance of emergency rooms and first responders so that we get an early picture of when fentanyl really starts to permeate a local market. And in that way, we can at least put out warnings. At the same time, there are some potential to equip drug users with test kits. Now, this is in its infancy and the technology isn't yet worked out. But there's been some experience in Europe with that for other drugs like MDMA or ecstasy. And it's met with mixed results, but that's a sort of second tool in the toolkit. The third is to engage in what are known as safe bases, which is to set up places where people can take the drugs in a safe environment and potentially have drugs tested That obviously has a variety of ethical and moral angles to it, as well as the public health side of it. But there have been some experiences with that in Canada, and we're just starting to have those in Boston here. And they're meeting with some success. So I think we need to really start to try some of these innovative practices and carefully monitor them and try to learn from them. So, in fact, you discuss in your article the tension between use reduction on the one hand and harm reduction on the other. What are the barriers to implementing those kinds of harm reduction techniques for fentanyl? Is there real pressure on policymakers to stick with use reduction instead? Well, I think history a little bit is on the side of use reduction. 
And then there are sort of a set of values arguments that play out in the harm reduction world. Most recently, we saw that in the state of Indiana when there was an outbreak of HIV and hepatitis C connected to people taking opioids with needles and doing things like needle sharing. And initially, the thought was that if you provided clean needles and sort of a safer environment, you would be encouraging the use of the illicit drugs. I think as the epidemic wore on and the public health consequences became so stark, policymakers, even in a place that sort of value-wise is uncomfortable with that, realized that it was probably still the right way to go. So I think there's a learning process, there's an assessment of how serious the trade-offs are that have to be played out in order to kind of get to the right balance. So that's the moral side of the story. The public policy side, you need to do things like train police to do business differently. You need to train first responders. We need to change our regulations about who we let get prescriptions for things like the overdose reversal drug, naloxone. And all of those things take time and you need evidence to make the changes in those policies and processes. So to go back to two things that you talked about, first, pill testing and the developing technology for that. Is there good evidence yet that fentanyl can be detected quickly in street drugs? And if so, where is that testing going to occur? Who's going to be doing that testing? Fentanyl is hard to detect, but there are some hopeful signs and there are some reports on that that suggest that progress is being made. So again, the technology still needs to be worked out fully. On the who does it side, I think to me the most practical ways to do it, at least at the beginning, would be through safe bases where to some extent you would have a healthcare facility hosting a safe environment for people to take their drugs, and there they would be equipped to actually apply the technology and apply it precisely. And then you mentioned naloxone, which can reverse fentanyl overdoses. What do you see as the chances that regulations can be changed to allow drug users, drug users' families, to keep naloxone on hand? I think that we're making pretty rapid progress on that. I think the opioid epidemic in general, and the fact that it started with prescription opioids, has actually helped with that because, for example, you had lots of older adults inadvertently overdosing, and having their caregivers equipped with naloxone seemed like a natural thing. But in order for that to happen, certain types of regulations had to be eased. And so I think that you've seen a lot of states quickly make some of those changes. And in fact, there are national groups like the National Governors Association and National Association of Pharmacists who are working on sort of model regulations in order to allow states to learn from the experiences of each other in crafting ways to regulate the availability of naloxone. Finally, you write in your article that expanded access to substance use disorder treatment, such as medication-assisted therapy, would also help reduce the deaths from fentanyl. How do you see access to that kind of treatment being affected if the Affordable Care Act is repealed? Yeah, that's a very important question. One of the things that has really allowed the use of medication-assisted treatment, and in particular the newer drugs other than methadone, naltrexone being one, 
buprenorphine being the other, has been the expansion of coverage, both through the health insurance marketplaces and through the Medicaid expansions. And what you've seen is a pretty dramatic uptake in buprenorphine in particular. And the combination of those coverage expansions with the behavioral health parity provisions that were put in place at the very beginning of the administration, of the Obama administration, really worked to dramatically expand the insurance coverage for people with substance use problems. And the consequence is that they now have much more purchasing power than they ever have in history to get medically-oriented care like medication-assisted treatment. So I think that at the end of the day, if we repeal and don't replace it with something that keeps that kind of financial access and purchasing power in the hands of people who really are suffering from these illnesses, we could see a significant worsening of the epidemic. Thank you, Dr. Frank.